Are you an accredited investor looking for a new opportunity to generate passive income and build the retirement of your dreams? Then elevate your investment game with Viking Capital, where wealth meets wisdom. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting out, Viking Capital can help guide you towards financial freedom through passive real estate investing. With strong and transparent underwriting, Viking identifies low-risk opportunities with the goal of preserving investor capital and maximizing long-term growth potential. And their accessible and responsive investor relations team will help you understand how each investment will impact your unique financial goals. With $800 million in assets acquired, more than $230 million in equity raised, and more than 5,000 units under management, Viking Capital is your path to early retirement. To learn about Viking Capital's latest investment opportunity, which is available for you right now, visit go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best. That's go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best to get started today. Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, Promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. You don't want it to be painful for five to seven years. So you really mm -hmm. want to enjoy the journey because you're going to be doing a lot of deals and it's important to have some longevity along the way. So pick your partners really carefully. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily Real Estate Investing Podcast, where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of fluffy stuff. We don't like this fluffy stuff. No time for it. We want to talk to Tony Castronovo, and we want to talk to him about his multifamily ventures. How are you doing, Tony? I'm doing great. Thanks, Joe. Well, I'm glad to hear it. And a little bit about Tony. He has the company Novo Multifamily Group. He's a full-time multifamily real estater. That should be a term. I think I just coined something. He's a real estater. He's a full-time real estate entrepreneur and syndicator. He's a real estater. He's got a portfolio of 868 multifamily units across seven properties in Texas and Oklahoma. He's based in Houston, Texas. With that being said, Tony, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Absolutely. And thanks for the intro. 
actually I focused on multifamily for the last four plus years. Before that, I had uh, spent about another four years in the single family space before being totally focused on multifamily starting in 2018. I am a full-time real estate, real estater, I should say, (laughs) (laughs) entrepreneur. And that's about a, a year in. So that's pretty exciting. Lots of things we can unpack on that. Mm-hmm. And I actually just launched another business just yesterday, focused on transition and performance coaching for entrepreneurs that are looking to get out and make it a full-time thing, or maybe started that way and just need a little bit of help to stay focused and, and be goal-driven. And so that's something new and exciting. Well, congratulations on the new business launch. That's awesome. Thanks. You can see how it can tie into your multifamily business, I assume, since you syndicate, you raise money from investors, right? So let's talk about your story a little bit. One year ago, approximately, you were not full-time. You were doing something else. What were you doing? For the last 25 years or so, I'll date myself. I was a management consultant. I spent about 11 years working with Ernst & Young before I made the jump. Okay. And... Then what did you do to prepare yourself to make that jump into real estate full-time? I like to say that it was very methodical and I reached financial freedom. And then one day I said, okay, I've hit my point in the timeline. It's now time for me to ride off into the sunset. And it absolutely wasn't that. We went through all the stuff with COVID, which kind of set my timeline back a little bit, probably a good year, year and a half. During that time, I had a little concern about layoffs and where my job security was. I had seen people around me being let go, people scaling back. So I ended up taking a short stint with a much smaller consulting company to just give it a shot, be entrepreneurial, try to help this business grow. And it was a bit of a, I'll dare say, train wreck. Mm-hmm. which was great because mm-hmm. having forced your hand. Yeah. It just pushed me out the door and said, I'm going for it. And sometimes that's just a blessing in disguise. Mm-hmm. It's a very similar story for what happened to me. I was working at an established advertising agency in New York and I worked there for seven years. And then I decided to give myself a promotion by taking another job at another agency and make more money. But I was there a year and it was more or less a train wreck also because I wasn't a good fit for that agency. And it forced my hand where after that, I then left the advertising world and I went into multifamily full-time. So if someone's considering leaving their industry to become full-time, simply go to a company where you won't be a good fit and then you'll have to go into multifamily to make your ends meet. You said you just launched a business that helps with people in performance coaching, but also in the transition period. What are some milestones that you recommend in a best case scenario be accomplished prior to going into another business or another career path full-time, whether it's real estate or some other unrelated field? It's probably no perfect solution for everybody, but I certainly wouldn't recommend just listening to a few podcasts, reading a couple books and saying, I'm going to go out and do my first deal. I'm going to quit my job and 
you have to be somewhat established and really have a good idea of what's your day going to be like the moment you decide to turn in the keys to the W-2. How are you going to operate? How are you going to stay disciplined? What are you driving toward? Are you syndicating and looking to continue raising money for deals? How many deals are you going to do? What kind of fees do you think you can generate? You have to have somewhat of a plan in place and some ability to have executed at least part of that plan so that you got enough confidence, you get a little bit of runway to get out there and try this thing called entrepreneurship. So let's talk about your deals. You've got multifamily deals in Texas and Oklahoma. It totals 868 units. What's the smallest deal in terms of units and what's the largest deal? The smallest is 20 units. And that was what I call an IRO, independent real estate owned type of property. The first and only that I bought just by myself, no syndication, no partner, no JV. Um, interesting learning experience, but it was my entry into multifamily and turned out fantastic. Couldn't have asked for a better deal, but it was tough along the way. So I got lots of war scars from it, but I learned so much. Mm-hmm. The largest one is 396 units, and it's a Class A property. It's a year old. It's actually on the market now to sell, <laughs> and we just got it last December. So it's another great case study, if you will, but I'm pretty fortunate on that one. Where are the 20 units located, and where are the 396 located? What city? The 20 actually is a property that I recently disposed of. That property is in Bryan College Station, Texas, where Mm -hmm. Texas A&M University is. And then the 396 is up in a town near Fort Worth, Texas. What town? I'm from Fort Worth. Okay, Weatherford. I grew up in Alito. I went to school at Alito High School, so that's literally the town right next to Weatherford. Oh, awesome. Got it. That is a certainly path of progress that West Fort Worth, uh, where Weatherford is located. All right, so College Station, you just sold it. What'd you buy it for? How much you put into it? What'd you sell it for? I bought it for nine hundred eighty thousand, and we ended up selling it for one point eight two five million. It was a three year hold, so essentially it was close to a thirty one percent IR in it. Just really couldn't have asked for anything better. During that three-year hold, I refied it twice, pulling out cash so that I could go and do other deals and continue to grow and build momentum. And how much did you put into it? All in all, I put in about 325K. Okay. Was in College Station, I imagine, Texas A&M, Aggies, college students, is that who you're renting to? You would think that, but no, it was all workforce housing, just blue collar workers. The thing about College Station is, yes, the university is the bellwether of the city, but Mm -hmm. there's just so much around that from restaurant workers to auto shops to moving companies, you name it. And those Mm -hmm. are the type of folks that were living in our place. So 1.825 and you put in 9, 10, 12. Just like 1.3 or so, 1.3 all in. So you cleared a a little over half a million dollars on that in profit. Is that about right? Yeah, that's about right. Wow. Bravo, my friend. (laughs) No wonder you do a multifamily instead of single family. 
you got some scars from that property. So you got half a million dollars plus from it in profit, but how did you get those scars? Well, as you know, multifamily, everybody says is a team sport, right? I didn't know that at the time. I just figured I used to buy single family homes. I used to renovate them and then rent them and rinse and repeat. And this is just bigger and more units. That's what I thought. Me too. (laughs) Totally different, right? And especially Mm -hmm. my single family homes were about a 30 minute drive. This was about an hour and a half. And I also inherited tenants, whereas my homes were always vacant. And I inherited Mm -hmm. 20, I'm not going to say problems, but they weren't easy tenants to deal with. So I hired third-party property management, which was another change for me because I was self-managing the single-family homes at the time. But battle scars along the way, I'd say, is from a financing perspective. When it's just you, you know, you can put a CapEx budget together and (laughs) understand what your run rate's going to be. But man, when the wheels come off, it's you. So we had to get very creative. And I'll tell you that I had this fantastic plan with the bank. I said, all right, everybody's month to month leases. The prior owner was in his 80s. He owned the property for over 40 years. He never raised the rent. Everybody was month to month. Late fees were $3 on this property. (laughs) So this was a fantastic opportunity to just say, okay, every month, we're not going to renew two tenants. We'll come in, we'll renovate and keep occupancy at 90% and be able to pay a mortgage and all that good stuff and then rinse and repeat. And on the spreadsheet, that looks amazing, right? That's right. Wonderful <laughs> business plan, but it doesn't always go that way. So for me, after the first month and I realized, hey, I got two brand new units. Why won't anybody move here? Oh, the other 18? Yeah, it's a turd all around it. So that was a big wake-up call. And I said, okay, that's it. Not two units a month. We're doing seven. And that hurt from an occupancy standpoint. But we basically let seven tenants go the next month. And we doubled down on our construction crew. And we just started churning through units. And within seven months, we renovated 19 out of 20 units. I had one guy that just would not go and was always willing to keep paying higher rent. So we kept him. But other than that, we turned that place in seven months. All 19 out of 20 in seven months returned? 19 out of 20, we brought rents from 500 to 750. That is such a good insight for the best of our listeners on paper. You are going to do a couple units, be very conservative, and then do the turnaround process over time. But because prospective residents who are coming in at a higher rent, different demographic, they're looking to have a better community experience, and they saw that they weren't going to get that. Therefore, you weren't renting it out, even though the comps were showing, I'm assuming, that you could rent it out or you should be able to rent it out at 750 that's going to help a couple people who are listening to this whenever they're putting together the business plan. So thank you for that. Of course. The other thing I mentioned, I put 325K into that, which is kind of a lot for that size property. But the reason why I spent that kind of money was this was like a 1967 vintage property. 
it needed a new roof in a bad way. It was a flat roof. It also needed new HVAC systems. They were all pretty much like original equipment. They don't make them like that anymore. That's for mm-hmm. sure. But I just said, you know, ripping the Band-Aid off. It's all new systems, brand new TPO roof. We had five balconies across the front of the property that were all rotted out. So we had to tear those down, new concrete, new framing. These are things that people don't necessarily pay extra rent for, but it drastically reduced my operating expenses. Once we're fully stable, we hardly spend any money on repairs and maintenance. There's just nothing wrong with it at that point. Mm. You mentioned earlier you had to get creative with the financing. When you were talking about financing, I initially thought you were talking about the debt, but then I figured out, I think you're talking about cash out of your pocket to make this thing happen. Will you elaborate on some examples of how you had to get creative to support the CapEx that was needed to turn this thing around? Yeah, I had a pretty decent bank loan that also included some capital expenditures, but not really to match what I wanted to do on the property. So I took what I could get on that and said, I'll figure it out. Got funds in the bank and access to credit lines and things like that. But when you've got to accelerate everything and you've got you know, crews working round the clock, cranking out units, you start burning through a lot of cash in a, in a pretty fast way. So I really had to tap into additional lines of credit. I was maxing out credit cards. I was using sources like a Cabbage and Fundbox and these sources of funding where you have to pay weekly. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> It was stressful, but man, after I did that first refi, it felt so good. I paid off all that debt and still had something left over to go do another deal, Mm. you know, but it was stressful. Wow. Mad respect for you to persevere through that and have the faith and the fortitude to see it through. Do you have a significant other in your life? I do. How did that conversation go with your significant other during this time where you're maxing out credit cards, you're doing weekly a sunbox and cabbage. I'm not familiar with them, but you said having to pay weekly or you're getting weekly draws from them. It yeah. seems like like a day lender almost. So how did that go on the family front? It went well enough. I mean, part of it is my wife trusts me and I keep her in the loop. We're not looking at account balances every day, every week kind of thing, but she trusts me that I have her best interest in mind. And that's super important to have the confidence that she believes in me and what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And these are all just short-term type things that she could see the improvements that we were making. She could see that we were bringing in new tenants at higher rents. It was just a matter of time. So I like to think that all those years of management consulting and helping clients and executive suites to better manage their businesses surely would allow me to manage my own finances for my real estate business. And it did. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. 
It's no secret that everyone is trying to find the recession-proof investment right now. What if you could invest in one of the most recession-resilient asset classes of the last 25 years with one of the best teams in the U.S.? Self-storage is that asset class, and Reliant Real Estate Management is that team. Reliant Real Estate Management is the 17th largest storage operator. They have sold over $1 billion in self-storage assets and have lost no investor principal with the average project-level IRR of 33% in the last three years. Right now, you can be one of the first to invest in their next fund at ReliantFund4.com. Fund 4 is a $100 million equity fund with seven properties already identified to close before the end of 2022. If you're an accredited investor, visit ReliantFund4.com to download the investment summary and schedule a call with Reliant's experienced team. That's ReliantFund4.com, R-E-L-I-A-N-T-F-U-N-D-F-O-U-R.com. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at PassiveInvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. PassiveInvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive investor guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. I'm going to give you a hypothetical scenario. Someone who is, we'll call him Bob. Bob bought a 20 unit in College Station and Bob bought his 20 unit for $980,000 and Bob put $325,000 worth of CapEx into the 20 unit. And Bob used lines of credit, maxed out credit cards, used those cabbage and fun box. But Bob ended up losing money on the deal. Hypothetically, of course, but how could it have gone different for you than Bob? What could have happened to you that happened to Bob where you did all this, but dang, you ended up getting burned. I think some things that could have gone differently. If I didn't take a chance to move so many tenants out so quickly, if I was more concerned about the short-term occupancy and keeping people in place so that my income every month wasn't dropping significantly, for whatever reason, my own perspective or the bank's perspective, Mm -hmm. if I was so worried about that, I think that could have either slowed things down dramatically and just taken a long time or something that I saw on another property, which was right in the heat of COVID, was that you start making all these improvements and then you kind of fall back. You almost Mm -hmm. slip back into dropping your standards, bringing people Mm -hmm. in that maybe don't really qualify just because you've got units available, you just spent the time renovating these things. I think sometimes you just have to trust your gut, your intuition. And if it's just short-term pain for long-term gain, I think you go for it. Mm -hmm. I just got back from being at the park with my soon-to-be four-year-old daughter. And she loves this huge slide 
And she not only loves going down the slide, she loves climbing up the slide. And this reminds me of when she attempts to climb up the slide. She goes all the way up and she's like, I'm going to do it. She does it. She gets to the top and she reaches her objective. But if she has second thoughts right around the middle part and then she looks back, she'll slide right back down. Same thing here. If you're going to do it, you need to do it all the way. You can't just do it a little bit and then have second thoughts. And now your tenant base isn't reflecting the quality of renovations that you've created. So it makes sense to me that you'd say that because when you talked about the two units a month plan to the, no, I just had to scrap that. And then I had to be intentional and consistent with these turns, doing them in bulk. That makes sense. Yeah. And not lowering standards. Trust me, it hurt when I had 25% occupancy during the peak of the renovation cycle and letting people go and so forth. It hurt so bad to turn away applicants, but we couldn't accept people at sub 600 credit scores and weren't paying their bills. They couldn't afford to live there. What's your property management company saying, hey, Tony, listen, I know they're not above 600, but that's who we're getting right now. Let's fill this up. Were they mentioning anything like that? Yeah, there was definitely a lot of that. But I think once they understood where my standards were long-term, they're going to have to manage these tenants. Mm -hmm. So we don't want to just remove one problem just to introduce another problem. We really Mm -hmm. are trying to reposition the property. And that's an important word there because you can come into a nice little turnkey property that's just humming along, make some operational improvements. That's great. But if you're going to take on a huge value add and completely reposition the entire property, just be in for a very big project and plan to take a few risks, but don't lower your standards when it's time to start filling it back up. I assume you didn't 1031 the money because you didn't mention that. If you didn't, why didn't you into something else? I 1031 into it, but when I was coming out, I was going into a syndicated deal. I heard, hey, it was challenged, but you came out really well. So why did you choose to forego a 1031 and put money into syndication versus keep building your own portfolio? Well, I guess there's a few ways I can answer that. First off is I started while I was running the 20 unit, I started to surround myself with people who are thinking bigger, who are in the syndication space. I had no idea that that even existed back when I first acquired that property. But I started seeing another way. I started seeing how I could partner with people, how I could raise capital, bring on investors, scale my money a little bit better maybe leverage is the better way to say that. So there was that aspect. The other thing, quite candidly, was that was right about the time I was thinking that I'm going to go full-time in a real estate. And mm-hmm. I could 1031 all those proceeds into another deal, but shouldn't I give myself a little bit of runway that right. I not to make it work for a while? Yep. So trust me, I was going through every permutation with my CPA on how could I possibly save some money on taxes instead of taking a capital gain on over 500K. Mm -hmm. And we did a few things, but the best way for me was buy a bunch of deals. 
just get into some syndications, get that bonus appreciation, offset as much of it as I could, but keep some money liquid so that I could start really running my business and getting off the ground. Taking a step back, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? Probably on the spirit of partnerships here is that you can quickly sort of jump into bed, if you will, and deals with people, but I think you really have to get to know them and align philosophies, risk appetite, strategy. You really have to know these people. That's going to make your life much easier. If you're holding a property for, say, five to seven years, you don't want it to be painful for five to seven years. So you really mm -hmm. want to enjoy the journey because you're going to be doing a lot of deals and it's important to have some longevity along the way. So pick your partners really carefully. It might be a little awkward to say, hey, can you tell me about your philosophy? What's your risk appetite? And what do I need to know to get to know you? Clearly, we're not going to ask those questions. What are some questions that don't sound weird that will help accomplish the objectives that we need to in order to get to know someone to determine if they're a good partner? You're right. It could sound weird. I don't know that I'm out there interviewing for partners, right? Mm -hmm. These are relationships that take time to develop. So the best ones are ones that form when you're not talking about a deal. You're actually maybe in the same real estate community mentoring program, or you live in the same town and constantly see these people every month at a meetup and develop a relationship. Something besides focused on a deal, because that's a transaction. And you don't want to start forming a partnership for the first time when you have a deal in front of you. But I, I give you one little example. I was considering a partner and we actually went and drove out to a property. It was a couple hours away. And as we're driving back, we got on this topic of how we we're going to finance the deal. Mm -hmm. And he said something like, well, I would only pay cash. And I'm like, well, why would you only pay cash? Well, because I don't believe in paying somebody else's interest. And I was just like, well, nothing against Dave Ramsey, but that's a Dave Ramsey mindset, perhaps. And it's not something that I personally subscribe to. And it's not that he was right and I was wrong or vice versa, but there were two different philosophies. And so I knew pretty quickly that we probably wouldn't make the best partners. Mm -hmm. Great friend, but not a great partner. Noted, and thank you for that. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What deal have you lost the most amount of money on? I don't think I've lost, but I surely could have gained a whole lot more. I had my second deal which was my first syndication. Everybody made money on it, but we exited early and I took the approach of let's exit, let's give people a return now for not having to go another three or four years of just pain and suffering on my part because I just poured my entire energy into that property for over two years. So we ended up with a 15% return on it, which is certainly nothing to write home about, but we could have lost money. And my goal was to preserve investor capital. And I always said I would not sell unless I could give my investors a return. 
What was in the background lurking where you could have lost money? It was one of those things like we were talking where we could have slipped back into this state of needing to reposition all over again. During the heat of COVID, after we were doing all these renovations and bring people in at higher rents and so forth, all of a sudden it was a ghost town. And mm-hmm. when you don't have tenants, residents, you don't have a business. So you start lowering your rent, lowering your standards. And then all of a sudden you kind of look up and go, man, look back where we started. Except we just poured a bunch of money renovating these units. Right. So yeah. that could have happened. And then the other big one was CapEx Tsunami. It was a property that just was sucking a lot of cash. And we were replacing HVAC systems about every month. And 1970s, 1960s, your construction? 63. 63, right. Okay. Yeah. Best ever way you like to give back to the community? Oh, man. I think I'm always doing something, but I think that I love to mentor people and I do a lot of meetups. I do a lot of one-on-one conversations with newer investors, part of a mentoring community, Jake and Gino. And through that, we just have a lot of new investors where they know they can always call me anytime. And it's nothing formal. It's just, I'm always available for them. How can the best ever listeners learn more about what you're doing? They can always email me. It's Tony, T-O-N-Y, at Novo, N-O-V-O, multifamilygroup.com, or same website, Novo, multifamilygroup.com. They can reach me there as well. Tony, thank you so much for being on the show. Enjoyed our conversation. Enjoyed getting to know you, learning about your journey. Congratulations on the new company yesterday, and congratulations on deals. And it was impressive to hear the 20-unit case study that you walked us through and the challenges and how you navigated those. So appreciate it. Hope you have the best ever day and talk to you again soon. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate being on the show.